Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Greetings once again, and welcome to another rollicking episode of Discovering the Old Testament, where we will continue our exploration into the later books that make up this remarkable compilation. I want to mention once more that we rely on donations from our listeners to keep this project going. If you like what you hear, please go to our website at lafcospress.com and make a donation. If you can't make a donation, at least tell your friends about us, especially your rich, generous friends. I also want to mention that you can get news about the podcast and other matters of Old Testament study on our Facebook page called, unsurprisingly, Discovering the Old Testament. This week I want to cover another source of the text, the Chronicler. Actually, it may make more sense to refer to the Chronicler as a school of thought. As with other sources, such as the Deuteronomistic History, by this time the authors of what would eventually become the Old Testament are still concerned with the question of what happened, why Israel went off track, and how to avoid it in the future. Chronicles, or at least a part of it, records events from late in the reign of Cyrus the Great, who conquered Babylon in 539 BCE. But based on other historic persons mentioned, it's more likely to have been written around 450 to 400 BC, with a date of 350 to 300 BCE considered most likely. This is particularly important because, like the Deuteronomistic history, Chronicles tells the story of the Israelite people. However, given the late date of its composition, this is a version that knows how the story ends, not the dismal ending with the fall of Jerusalem, but the peculiar, unexpected surprise ending where the Jews lose everything and then somehow get it all back. In addition to Chronicles, what was traditionally ascribed to the Chronicler includes the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, although it's almost universally believed that the same author was not responsible for all three books. In fact, most scholars will refer to the Chroniclers, plural. What do we know about this mysterious author of Chronicles? He was most likely a Levite who served in the rebuilt temple. He demonstrated a broad range of knowledge and reading, as well as a strong theological sense. As we might expect, his answer to the question of what went wrong is bound up in the failure of Israel and Judah to observe the proper forms of worship, particularly where the temple was concerned. He puts a lot of emphasis on ritual purity and prayer. We also start to see some of the strong sense of exclusiveness that history associated with the Jewish people, but we're going to save that discussion for another episode when we talk about Ezra and the Torah. The Book of Chronicles is, as I mentioned, a history. In fact, there are large sections, even entire chapters, where Chronicles follows Samuel and Kings verbatim. So it is particularly interesting to see where the text deviates. One area of interest is in the personal history of King David. The author of Chronicles goes to great lengths to portray David as a good, pious king. 
it goes as far as possible in associating David with the construction of the original temple, establishing the priestly guilds to serve in the temple, composing the psalms, making all the preparations for construction so that all Solomon had to do, figuratively speaking, was to add water and stir. This seriously contradicts the accounts in Kings, but this is clearly important to Chronicles. It insists that David was a good, God-fearing king who was, in his own way, a lawgiver on almost the same level as Moses himself. But what about all that racy, juicy scandal for which David is known? Chronicles mentions none of it. We hear nothing of his atrocities against the Moabites, where Kings mentions that David sinned by taking a census, Chronicles chalks it up to the temptation of Satan. Neither the business with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, nor the rebellions of David's own son against him, all the faults and foibles, are missing. We also see something fairly new in Chronicles, and that is the idea that God rewards or punishes righteousness or wickedness, respectively, on the part of the kings immediately. Where Samuel and kings see delayed or prolonged punishment and reward over a period of years or even generations, the Babylonian exile itself being a prime example, the God of Chronicles is much swifter in his retribution. This might reflect a changing theological perspective. Such immediate retribution or blessing is fairly common in other intertestamental and early New Testament literature, but it is also quite possibly an effort by the author to stress the belief of a God who actively intervenes in history, particularly the history of Israel and Judah. That by itself is nothing new. But we have to remember the historical context, which is that for fifty years a debate had been raging among the deposed elite of Judah regarding the future of the nation, assuming there would be one. With the realization of return from exile, this debate was no longer hypothetical. Who would rule? Would the Davidic dynasty be restored? With the restoration of the temple, might the Jews also realize control over other parts of their ancient lands? This is why a work like Chronicles was so crucial to that time. If you are going to resurrect a glorious past, it helps to know what that past looked like. For many Jews, this was not well known, or at least not universally agreed upon. Interpretation of the past was, and still is, a means of charting a future course. Believe it or not, this was a significant theological shift in how the Jews read religious literature. Reading to understand the past was one thing, but increasingly, during this period and later times, interpreters would use scripture in an oracular way, from tracing obvious lessons to squeezing what we would consider outlandish or absurd predictions about the future from the text. It's a form of interpretation that continues in parts of the Judeo-Christian tradition to this day. Chronicles does not solely look back to the past, it also looks deliberately to the future, one that is much different from anything Judah has experienced before this time. They are without a king. The Davidic dynasty is gone. But David remains as a cornerstone of the Jewish nation. 
He is the founder of the temple and the community associated with it. David must display the necessary levels of piety and righteous zeal that Judah must match if they are to realize the same level of divine favor. It's just that the author of Chronicles must recast him as a religious leader with less emphasis on his political career or accomplishments as a monarch. To put it another way, Chronicles traces a history that attempts to lead Judah into completely new territory. They must learn how to survive and maintain themselves as a nation and as a holy people without the benefit of their king, or even their freedom as a nation. Remember, they had returned from exile, but they were still subjects to the Persian emperor. If there was to be no restoration of the monarchy, and all the usual political and military powers of statecraft that went with it, then something very new was required. As you might expect, Chronicles not only envisions a new society without a traditional king, but one in which the priest is superior to the king. In fact, one might even make the case that Chronicles was responding to the Deuteronomists by claiming that the cultic approach was of greater importance than the prophetic tradition that drove much of the Deuteronomic narrative. One other interesting side note regarding Chronicles is that while Christian Bibles place it beside the other historical books of Samuel and Kings, Hebrew scriptures place it among the writings, a sort of catch-all category for books that do not fit neatly into either law or prophetic works. Even though, as I mentioned, Chronicles is not believed to have been written by the author of Ezra and Nehemiah, there is an intriguing link between the two. The closing phrase of Chronicles is repeated as the opening of the book of Ezra. Ezra continues the theme of forming a cultic society that begins in Chronicles, but splits its narrative into two sections. The first picks up the tale from the point where the exiles return to Jerusalem from Babylon, but in spite of their best intentions, they are unable to form a strong social or religious community. One thing we learn is that the return from exile did not happen all at once. There were at least two groups of returnees, one led by an official named Sheshbazar, and another under Zerubbabel. Note that neither of these names are even close to being Jewish, which gives us a hint that things have drifted quite a ways from where they were before. Eventually, the temple is rebuilt and rededicated in 516 BCE. The second part starts around chapter 7 and is set many years later. This is also where we meet Ezra for the first time. Based on what we have in the text, he was a priest from the families of both Aaron and Zadok, the latter being the family appointed by Solomon himself to oversee the service of the original temple in perpetuity. He had lived in Persia until word reached him of the spiritual weakness of the people in Jerusalem and the dire need for reform. Intermarriage with non-Jews who did not follow Yahweh was a serious problem. 
Ezra insisted that there could be no such mixing of religious beliefs. The text states that he invalidated all marriages between Jews and pagans. This would have been a terribly difficult thing to do, but according to the text, the Jewish men did in fact renounce their marriages to pagan wives. If this did happen more or less as recorded, it would have been devastating to these families, but Ezra was pursuing a very specific agenda. Chronicles was setting the stage for a new kind of nation, one that aspired to levels of priestly purity and piety that would secure divine favor and protection, but without the benefit of a monarch to impose social and political cohesion. The only alternative available to achieve that kind of communal strength was to recast the Jews into a singular, one might even say insular, people whose uniqueness would provide a bulwark against the influence that had torn it apart in the past. There is another possibility, one that is maybe a little more tenuous, but I'll put it out there because this is my podcast after all. The return from exile in Babylon was couched, naturally, as a repeat of the original exodus, the return from captivity in Egypt. Part of that story involved displacing the Canaanite nations that occupied the covenant land. Could the story of the removal of pagan spouses be playing the same role in this narrative? It seems possible especially since the text spends so much time on it, indicating that it has special importance, arguably beyond that of homogenizing Jewish families. Of course, the core to shaping this new religious community was the Torah, which Ezra personally assembled and canonized, securing the promise of the people to abide by this new body of law. A proper discussion of this will have to wait for our next installment, but we can examine a few of the other reforms Ezra enacted, along with the follow-up history as recorded in Nehemiah. But to return to our discussion of Ezra, other reforms included solidifying the Sabbath as a weekly day of rest, support for the temple with a new special tax, and devoting themselves to studying the Torah as an act of worship and living accordingly. This is where we see the sense of election and the pervading sense of holiness and worship focus into the very fabric of Jewish society. It's easy for us from our modern perspective to think that the Jews were always dedicated as a people and society to the kinds of piety and everyday worship that we associate with observant Jews. If the texts are to be believed, it wasn't really that way, even with the reforms of Josiah until the time of Ezra. He was the one who probably had the most profound influence on how Judaism evolved from late antiquity into the medieval period and on to the present day. The book of Nehemiah continued this story, detailing the major events. The first is the completion of the temple and the city walls around Jerusalem. Nehemiah himself was a Jew and an official in the Persian court. This, incidentally, indicates that Persian tolerance and inclusiveness was not mere political rhetoric. Upon hearing from a relative in Palestine of the deteriorating condition of the Jewish community in Jerusalem, he persuaded the then-emperor Artaxerxes to make Judah an independent satrap and to appoint him as governor. 
he would have been in the city roughly the same time as Ezra. Anticipating trouble from the local and surrounding leadership, Nehemiah armed the construction workers and, in spite of troops from Edomite and Arab tribes sent to disrupt the construction, plus interference from other nearby satrapies, he completed the fortifications in an incredible fifty-two days. Nehemiah placed a high priority on the city walls because there remained much opposition to the new temple from surrounding areas. A strong city wall was one way to ensure that this new temple did not meet a fate similar to that of its predecessor. On two occasions, like Ezra, Nehemiah had to reimpose strict enforcement of marriage and Sabbath day laws, even resorting to the use of force to make sure that the reforms would stick. There is some confusion between the reforms attributed to Nehemiah and those attributed to Ezra, but they come down to more or less the same idea, which was to ensure the integrity of the Jewish community as a nation defined by its law. As I've mentioned, this was a fairly new idea and quite a radical one, especially when it came to religious practice. Pagan religion was flexible. You could be an adherent of as many or as few gods as you wished, and nobody really cared. Religious exclusivism didn't really exist. The Jews' refusal to diversify their theological portfolios was unusual, to say the least, but it served them well as a means of maintaining their communal ties. Nehemiah also mentions a great covenantal ceremony in chapters 8 through 10. This is where it all comes together, where the Torah really takes the center position as the core of Jewish religious life, and the law itself becomes the definition of what it means to be a Jew. I hope you'll join us when we discuss this adoption of the Torah and the beginning of the age of Scripture next time. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.